Something happened at my neighborhood swimming pool earlier in the summer. It was the first day of swimming on uh, Memorial Day, and kids are always eager to get into the pool after not swimming for eight months. And there was this one kid who was so eager to swim that he, he goes into the pool, his, his parents are getting, they're, they're arriving, his parents are not even in the gate yet, and this kid's already got his, you know, flip-flops off and his shirt off, and he is headed to the diving board. And so I, I'd seen this kid before. I'd seen him jump off the diving board a hundred times in the years past, and this kid knows how to swim, and he, he was ready to jump in. And so he goes, and he gets on that diving board, and he runs off, and he lets it loose. Mind you, the neighborhood pool had been open for a whopping five minutes the whole summer. And I have lived in this neighborhood long enough to know that in late May and early June, the water in the pool is still very, very cold. As a 200 plus pound man, when I jump into that water, I can feel the shock reverberating through my body. If I was not awake before, I am awake by the time my neck even gets into the water. And so this kid jumps into the water and quickly his body realizes, I am not in the same surrounding temperature that I was half a second earlier. And so that sends this kind of a shock into this kid's mind, not a, not a physiological shock as much as just a mental one. And the eyeballs pop wide open and he automatically goes into not swim to the side mode, but survival mode, which is represented in the dog paddle position, right? So you put your head up and this kid is kind of freaking out. And within the first couple of minutes of the 2019 Quaker Heights Homeowners Association swimming pool swimming season, the lifeguard is already in the pool rescuing the first kid. Praise God for lifeguards. Amen. You know, today's text is kind of like jumping into that water. Hearing these words of Jesus puts a shock into our system. And we're going to talk about that. But before we dive in to this text, here is why we are reading this scripture in the first place. Five or six months ago, as I was working on my doctoral work, I was required to read a book called Eat This Book by Eugene Peterson. Uh, anybody remember who Eugene Peterson is? Uh, pastor, author, um, very great influence on uh, many of us pastors across America, across many different traditions. And in his book, Eat This Book, he tells of his dog. He lived out in Montana, and his dog would go out in the woods and find some dead animal and bring a bone in. Uh, he'd bring the bone in his yard, and the dog would go sit on the edge of the yard, and he would just start gnawing on that bone. He would chew on it, and then he'd bury it, and then he'd dig it up, and he'd chew on it some more. And Peterson would just watch his dog do this. And after several days, finally that bone got whittled down to nothing, and he would go find him another bone. Peterson said, this is really how Christians are to approach Scripture. 
The Scripture is to be savored. Scripture is to be eaten. Scripture is to be gnawed on and chewed on and worked on and, and, and just lived in. He goes on from there to talk about how there is a great temptation in the world today to use Scripture, not to enter into and immerse ourselves into the world of the text, but to take a little Scripture here and to go over here and maybe take a little Scripture here and maybe one there and to use those particular texts outside of their context to build up whatever we want to do in our lives. Peterson calls this the sovereign self that we tend to and are tempted to take various scriptures and to build up the sovereign self. Well, as I was reading through this, I became convicted that as I reflect on 15 years of my own pastoral ministry and my own preaching, that there are um, still a significant numbers, number of parts of the biblical text and, and biblical passages that I've never preached from. And one of the reasons that I've never preached from is because when we do sermon series here, when I do sermon series, I have this theme or this topic, and then I go to the Bible thinking, well, what, what could help me as I talk about this theme or this topic? And then I pick and choose. Now, I'm not anti-sermon series. I'm not anti-thematic series. That's a good thing because that's pretty much what I've been doing for a long time now. But I think there is a time when a person just needs to jump into the world of the text, the world of the Bible, and let the world of the Bible shape and form what gets preached, what gets lived out, what gets talked about. Today is one of those days. And so what we're doing right now, we are entering into a season, and in that season, we are going to let the Bible be the first word. And we're just going to start where the Bible takes us. The second thing is, I've decided not to be the primary person to select that text. And so we have decided, I've decided to allow what we call the Revised Common Lectionary to be the ways that the text gets selected. Uh, you'll see a little note about this in the bulletin. Um, you can look that up later. It talks a little bit about what the lectionary is. Basically, it's a, a diet reading plan of the scriptures for the church. And multiple churches do this. A lot of Methodist churches will use the Revised Common Lectionary. So what I didn't know when I committed to doing that was that this was going to be the first text of the day where Jesus talks about being baptized, where he talks about bringing fire to the earth, where he talks about causing division among family members and separating fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, and where Jesus talks about hypocrites um, you need to learn how to interpret the times. So what we're doing here is we are diving into the deepest, coldest part of the pool where the acclamation is the greatest. Now, as I say that to you, I also want to simply say it's okay. It's okay to wrestle with the Bible. It's okay to wrestle with the text and let it wrestle with you. There are other scriptures that talk about wrestling with God. It's not always just warm and fuzzy and cozy, but nobody wrestles with God and walks away unchanged. When we enter into the text, we are entering into our relationship with Him. And when we do that, we let God do the work on us that God wants to do. So diving in in this way is a great act of faith. It's an act of faith and an act of trust in the goodness of God. And so I kind of want to give that to you as a precursor as 
we focused on our text today from Luke chapter 12. Throughout the rest of the fall, most of our text will be right after Luke 12. We're just going to be walking through the rest of Luke. Here's today's. I want to read it again. Jesus says, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He then said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say it's going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? That's a hard one to say, Lord, add your blessing to the reading of, of your word, isn't it? Lord, just put a blessing, and not, not just adding a blessing, just, just give us any kind of blessing there. We have jumped in and we feel the shock of the temperature change. Jesus came to bring fire. What does that mean? Jesus has come to bring division. How do we square that away with his other teachings about peace? What is this bit about interpreting the present time like the weather? The water is cold, isn't it, brothers and sisters? So before we go on a dog paddle survival mode and call for a lifeguard, let's just relax and let's get our bearings. First of all, this text in Luke chapter 12 is located in a large portion of Scripture, about half of Luke's whole gospel, where Jesus is on a journey from Galilee, where he kind of usually hang out, hung out, all the way down to Jerusalem. And this journey is not merely a geographical journey. Within the larger story of Scripture and the larger story of Israel, it is a political journey. It is a, a historical journey. It is a religious journey, and it is packed full of meaning. Going to Jerusalem is more than just going from point A to point B. Jerusalem has a lot of meaning. Jesus knows this is the place that he is going to die. It is his final trip. Jesus is a man on a mission. He is possessed by this mission. Like a basketball player who carries the team on her back all the way to the end. You've heard that expression. They, they just take the whole team, they carry them on their back, and they go to the victory. Jesus is carrying the mission of God on his back single-handedly. He is on a collision course, and he knows it. He knows and has even said to his disciples multiple times that when he gets to Jerusalem, he is going to be killed. He knows that he is also going to the very heart of the problem that has to do with part of that mission. That God's purposes for Israel, that God set up in the first place, all the way back in the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 12, that God would bless Abraham and his descendants and his family, and that he would bless them to be a means through which he could bless the entire world. 
That was the mission. But the problem is that Israel and its leaders have failed in that mission. And Jesus is here to remind them of that time and time again. They have failed to be the light to the nations. They have failed to be the blessing of God. They have hogged that blessing for themselves rather than extending it to those on the margins of society or to the other nations of the world. And Jesus is here to move that needle forward, to push that mission to the next level. But before that happens, the current system of corruption must be dealt with, must be identified for what it is and exposed. Jesus says, I have come to bring fire and how I wish it were already started. I have a baptism to undergo and I am under stress until it is completed. Envision a Jesus who has the mission of God on his back. Envision a a Jesus who is not only possessed by this mission, but is under great stress to carry that mission out, to carry it forward, to be faithful and true to the reason that God has him on the planet in the first place, in his particular time and location. And so that helps us a little bit. But at times I look at the scriptures and I look at the words of Jesus in this word and I see the intensity and for me it can be very intimidating. And my first thought is just kind of dismiss it. Maybe, maybe Luke didn't really write that. Maybe that was just added later. Maybe, maybe Jesus didn't really say that. Maybe I can just kind of walk around this text and pretend that it doesn't exist. Or maybe we can face it and see if there's something out of this that God wants us to have. Consider the following. When we see an angry Jesus, what kind of anger are we looking at? When you imagine Jesus being angry, what does that do in you? A couple of things about anger. There are two kinds of anger, at least. But in general categories, we have two. The first is a person who can have anger without love. Anger without love happens when we get cut off in traffic. Anger without love happens when someone does something to us that makes our life inconvenient or takes control out of our hands. Often we see anger, and if you're a confessor like me, we confess that sometimes that anger comes to the surface even in our own lives. These are often forms of unrighteous anger. But let's flip the coin. You can have anger without love. But you cannot have true love without the possibility of anger. It's absolutely impossible. If you love somebody and somebody else does injustice to that person, you will rightfully be angry. That is a God-given response to protect, to defend, and to go to bat for those who are being unjustly treated. One of the things that I've become more and more aware of over the last few years, and particularly the last couple of weeks, is the rising prevalence of human trafficking right here in Lubbock, Texas. And it's hard to believe because it's so baffling. 
But young persons, typically young girls and even girls who are in the high school or middle school or even younger, right here in Lubbock, Texas, are being used. And if you just think about that for just a few minutes, with any imagination whatsoever, and, and you're a person who's like a real human being who cares about people in general, then you will find anger coming up in you. Will you not? Something rises up. Something that says, I, someone's got to do something about this. We don't always know what to do with our anger. But that's an anger that comes out of love. That's an anger that, that comes out of a desire to protect, a desire to go to bat for those who are being unjustly treated. Jesus' anger is a righteous anger. Jesus' anger is grounded in God's mission. Jesus' ang- anger is because of God's love for people. Because there are people who are being rejected by Israel's leaders. Jesus never, in the, as, as, as far as I can tell in all of Scripture, He never gets angry in defense of Himself. He is always angry in defense of somebody else. He's in angry, he is angry in defense of widows and orphans and Samaritans and hemorrhaging women and the demon-possessed and the lame and the sick and people from neighboring cities and countries, Roman centurions and tax collectors and all kinds of outsiders who have been kept outside by God's chosen people. He's angry because he loves. Jesus is a man on a mission under stress, headed toward his own death because of his love for the world. And that mix of circumstances calls for some shocking words. One of those shocking words is a phrase about division. I have come to separate a father and his son, a mother and a daughter, a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. What is that all about? I have not come to bring peace, says Jesus. Well, don't we call him the Prince of Peace? Aren't there other places in the Bible where Jesus says, Peace be unto you? Doesn't he say, Go in peace? What's this? How do we fit this in? In a few chapters, Jesus will tell a story about a man who has two sons. We typically call this story the, man of the story of the prodigal son, but that's just a label we've put on it. it. It's really the story about a man who has two sons, and the younger son takes the inheritance of his father and goes away and squanders it on worldly living, while the older son stays at home and does all that he needs to do and all his father wants him to do at home. Well, the younger son finally runs out of money and ends up making his way back to his dad, wants to be at least a slave or a servant in the house. And the dad throws cloak around him, kills the fatted calf, brings him in and begins to celebrate. The older son is out in the field working and he comes and he in and he hears the sound of the party. He sends a servant to see what is going on. He finds out that the younger brother, the younger son has come home. And they're having a party. The father is celebrating. And at this very moment in the story, the father comes out and pleads with his son to come in. And Jesus leaves the story hanging at that point right there. 
He doesn't say whether the older son comes in or whether the older son stays out. It's, the, the story is yet to be written. And that's why Jesus told it that way, I believe. But imagine this older son not going in and celebrating. Imagine him refusing to accept his younger brother, refusing to forgive, refusing to love him. If that were the case, then what we have is division, right? We have an older brother who's unwilling to be reconciled to his brother and therefore unwilling to be reconciled to his father. That's the division that Jesus is talking about. It's the division between those who are really embracing God's mission and those who are refusing God's mission in Jesus, who want to cling to the status quo and keep outsiders pushed away. That's the division Jesus is talking about. This division can actually be a word of encouragement for some, for the person who finds faith in God, becomes a follower of Christ, which brings on the cold shoulder or the scoffing of family members or other close people. That person realizes we don't always live in a faith-friendly world, do we? So knowing that there may be opposition and even our own family members can be a word of encouragement to those who following Jesus means they've had to disrupt some things in their family. In Jesus' day, the family unit was the greatest bond. Jesus is simply saying that the bonds of the community that he is gathering together is even greater. Today, family influences remain powerful. Family values and family norms often keep people from breaking out of those norms. Often that's a good thing. So, you know, little Johnny doesn't just go off the rails once he goes to college. But that can be a two-edged sword. It can also keep people from following God's call on their life. From doing God's will, which is a higher calling than simply keeping the family peace. God's mission and God's will is not something that can be put on the shelf impotently in the corner of the room. The gospel and the mission of God is not just some little convenient thing that we can have on the sidelines of our life. Jesus is saying, this is right in the center. And when it's in the center, it might disrupt some other things. It might disrupt some other allegiances, some other relationships, some other ties. Not everybody is going to be going in to the party. And so we have seen firsthand in these words of Jesus that this is not a harmless Jesus who is simply telling us to be nice to each other, is it? This is a Jesus who is sent by God, who has the very Spirit of God dwelling on him and in him, the zeal of the Lord for the righteousness and goodness of God, the one who is willing to go to bat for all those who are vulnerable, and the one who is even believes in this mission so much so that he is willing to give his own life for it. This sounds like a Jesus that is worth getting to know, isn't it? And knowing this Jesus and this mission being worthy of our lives, 
it presses us to ask some questions about where we're at in life. Are we clinging to people more than we cling to Christ? Are we clinging to our family expectations more than God's expectations? Are we clinging to our comfort and our convenience more than to God's mission for us? It presses us to ask, who are those outsiders that Jesus might be calling us to pay attention to? Who is He sending us to minister to? Have we settled for a domesticated Jesus? Have we settled for a false peace when Jesus offers us the peace of His kingdom? The good news in all of this whether you've had all your questions resolved from Luke chapter 12 or not. The good question in all of this is that this very Jesus is one who is willing to give his life for you and for me. And then he calls to this table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and who seek to live in peace, peace with God and with one another. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you just meet us in this place where we're at as we engage you along this journey to Jerusalem. We pray that your words would soak into our hearts and into our minds. Lord, today we embrace this cross. We embrace this bread and this wine as a means of your goodness and grace for us. Lord, as we take this into our bodies and are sent out into the world, would you give us your eyes to see and your ears to hear of your kingdom? As we go out into the corners of our job and our homes and our neighborhoods, give us your spirit. I want to invite those who are serving to come at this time. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we would be the body of Christ redeemed by your blood. Make us one with you, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until you return and we feast at your heavenly banquet. Lord, we're so grateful that you have showed us the way. Empower us to do your will today. In your name. Amen.